Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the second season of the LCLC podcast. In our first season, I reviewed the storied 50-year history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC. I'm your host, Matthew Biberman, and I started this podcast after I was tapped to be the LCLC's new director in the summer of 2021. The second season exists as an aid for me as I work to ensure that the conference continues to stay relevant in the future as a space both for art in the short and in the long term. I do so in order to prepare for our momentous upcoming 50th conference and looking further ahead, I plan also to engage with artists, writers, and theorists who I see as doing important work in order to expand the space for art here in our country beyond its current precarious location within the Academy. In this episode, I talk with Alden Lynn Nielsen, the George and Barbara Kelly Professor of American Literature at Penn State University. Alden is the author of the recent study, The Inside Songs of Amir Baraka, as well as The Unusual Meme Wars, a book-length conversation between Nielsen and Grammy Award nominee for Best Spoken Word Book, E. Ethelbert Miller. He's also a poet in his most recent collection, from Salve Escura is entitled Spider Cone. Alden will be reading from Spider Cone during the LCLC conference at the Brown Hotel at 9 p.m. on Friday, February 24th. And it's an event I'm very much looking forward to. Alden and I began our conversation by me inviting him to tell us more about the African-American Literature and Culture Society and their upcoming panels for our LCLC 50th conference. Um, in the late 1980s, when the American Literature Association was forming as a coalition of author societies, there were only two or three formal societies devoted to black authors at the time, and only one of them was participating in the American Literature Association. So the late Wilfred Samuels and several others of us decided to create this African-American Literature and Culture Society, originally to ensure that there would always be a significant representation of, of black literature uh, at those conferences. Uh, it's now nearly a quarter, of, I think it is a quarter of a century old, um, and it sponsors other conferences from in, in other locations from time to time and participates in things like the College Language Association. Uh, in the meantime, there's been a proliferation of Black author societies, things like the Pauline Hopkins Society, Langston Hughes Society, and so forth, including, and this still seems odd to me, quite a few societies devoted to living authors, including John Edgar Wideman and Tony, well, Tony Morrison's not living anymore, but um, it started while she was still alive. So anyway, it's, it's, it's been a fairly active uh, organization appearing at different conferences over the years. I think the first time we appeared at uh, Louisville, I can't remember what year it was, uh, we had a panel on, on uh, poetry and jazz that went fairly well. Um, so we had one last uh, last year, and now we're back with two panels this year. 
Um, the first one, which I'll be chairing on Friday morning, bright and early, uh, includes Laura Vrana from University of South Alabama, uh, the fantastic Evie Shockley, one of the great poet critics of our time from Rutgers, and Yolanda Mackey, who is a PhD student. So um, it's a, on the one hand, it's a panel designed to show, sort of represent people at different stages of their careers, um, but also we're ranging from uh, Laura's work on what she calls the Phyllis Wheatley poem. Uh, you may know there's been a resurgence of interest in Phyllis Wheatley lately, and quite a few poets, including Honoré Jeffers, have written uh, poetry about Wheatley. Um, uh, Evie Shockley is going to be talking about Ekphrasis and the survival of Black being, which is a topic I'm really excited to hear about. Those of you know who know her uh, critical work uh, know that she was one of the people who helped spurred the interest in black writers and and, and, and nature writing. And Mackie's gonna be talking about a reimagining of um, uh, Harlem Renaissance, uh, a perpetual <laughs> source of debate. And then the second panel on Saturday uh, will feature Jean-Philippe Marcoux from uh, Quebec um, on the tradition of naming, which is a really exciting topic in African diasporic writing generally. Uh, Gregory Perrault, uh, whose first book was about uh, the Black Avenger in uh, uh, Western culture, and he's going to be talking about Percival Everett, who I will note was a former uh, keynoter at Louisville some years ago. And finally, Rachel uh, Carr, who was the, I think, outgoing president of the organization now, uh, who's going to be talking about the Red Scare and Zora Neale Hurston. So it, it's quite a, a, a breadth of work that we'll be um, presenting there. And, and I hope we'll be able to uh, put on panels a little bit more regularly than we have sometimes in the past. Um, as you um, no doubt are aware, uh, travel budgets at all the universities have been slashed to the bone over the recent years. And, you know, it's difficult, particularly from some people from lower funded schools to to get to as many conferences as they might like. But um, I'm, I'm optimistic. And of course, the after, for anybody who might go to ALA in Boston and Memorial Day weekend, we'll have uh, five or six panels there in our annual awards, um, the Stephen Henderson Award, the Darwin Turner Award and the Octavia Butler Award. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Octavia Butler, another uh, key, keynote that was at the LCLC some years past. Now, you're, uh, you're also presenting, though, on another panel. Um, right. There are two panels on, the, on UMBRA. Tell us about what UMBRA was and um, what the as best you know, what the discussions are going to be on these two panels that are focusing on Umbra. Sure. I, uh, I prepared by having the <laughs> copy of the schedule in front of me here. Uh, Umbra, full name was the Society of Umbra. It was a uh, workshop of black writers that started primarily on the Lower East Side, although a lot of the writers were coming from uptown as well, Lower East Side of New York, that is, uh, in the early 1960s. And it's widely seen now as one of the most important precursors uh, of the Black Arts Movement. And several of the writers that were members of the Umbra Society uh, went on to become important writers in the Black Arts period, including Ishmael Reed uh, and, of course, Lorenzo Thomas. At the, at the time the organization was meeting, and they put out a journal as well for a while, um, Lloyd Addison, who I will be speaking about, was the oldest member of the group. And Lorenzo Thomas, whose uh, collected poems I've co-edited for Wesleyan, was the youngest member of the group. I think he was only like 19 years old uh, back in the day. 
So if readers of Harriet Mullen's uh, Muse and Drudge might remember uh, an interesting line that pops up in the poem where she talks about um, slumming Umbra uh, alums. And what she was getting at was the, the tremendous influence of people who had been members of the Umbra group and particularly their role in mentoring and, and encouraging younger writers. In her case, uh, Tom Dent, who had moved back to New Orleans, and Lorenzo Thomas, who had moved to Texas, uh, were you know, among the, the fundamental people in, in helping her as she was uh, getting her early start as a poet in Texas herself. Um, so our panel, uh, the first one, um, Tyrone uh, Williams is going to be speaking about uh, Rashida Ismaili, uh, which is a, in some ways a, in some ways a prelude to the other Umbra panel. In the scholarship to date, there has not been enough work on the women writers who are part of Umbra. Um, so the panel, the fact that we're going to have a panel on that is really exciting to me. And Ismaili Rashida, I'm sorry, Rashida Ismaili was one of the primary uh, women members. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Lloyd Addison, who's to this day, probably one of the least known of the Umbra poets, although he was amazingly prolific. Uh, and if I remember right, there the whole run of his journal titled Bo Coco is available as a PDF on the Eclipse site. Um, the third speaker, Lori Shire, is going to be talking about the Heritage series. Um, uh, it was a series of of uh, publications by black authors that came out of England and many of the Umbra writers appeared in that series. Uh, unfortunately, now that China has um, lifted a lot of their international travel restrictions, her university, Hunan University, has demanded that she come back to teach in person. So she'll be Zooming in. Uh, last year on, uh, the Loy on the Lorenzo Thomas panel, we had to pipe Tyrone Williams in because he'd, had, he'd fallen and hurt his knees and, and so forth. But the second panel on Saturday is the panel on the women of Umbra. Uh, there was a conference on this topic a couple of years ago. I'm sorry to say I wasn't able to be there. But Evie Shockley, again, is going to be chairing that one. Uh, Laura Hinton is going to talk about gender trouble within the society of Umbra, which I'm sure will be a provocative uh, session getting at the gender, you know, again, this was the early 60s. Um, not only did more of the men in Umbra get published than the women, but a lot of the women were helping the men get published and not getting much credit for it. Um, Lori Shire, again, will be talking about Calvin C. Hurton, uh, one of the major figures of the Umbra group, and uh, uh, co-edited the collected poems of Calvin Hurton along with the British scholar David Grundy. And I think that's just about to come out. And then Tanya Foster, amazing poet herself, is coming from San Francisco State uh, to talk about the, uh, what we might call the eclipse of black women in Umbra. It's titled, her title is uh, On the Records, The Disappearing of the Black Women of Umbra. Uh, a lot of passing... Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Umbra was not an exclusively black organization. Uh, um, I'm forgetting Berger's first name, Arthur Berger, uh, whatever his name is. There were a couple of white writers who were involved in that organization, too. But again, this was at a time when black nationalism was starting to erupt. And we didn't see that much of that kind of collaboration, say, from 66 to maybe 1970 or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, these four panels are, to me, uh, they're they're very exciting. 
material. And strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, um, politically relevant uh, to our current moment, uh, and I'm thinking, as uh, as I'm sure, no doubt, you'll quickly make the connection as well, to all the brouhaha that DeSantis has uh, created over the idea of teaching AP African American history, and I, I mean, it, there's a way in which you would think we would be more mature than this, you know, that here now in 2023, this is still where we are. But I I wondered if I could get your thoughts about what it means to uh, study and talk about and champion uh, African-American literature in the current American environment. Well, I'll say a word along the way about um, how we have evolved within the academy. Um, like the American Literature Association, the first time I ever attended uh, the Louisville Conference, there was a real paucity of panels or even individual papers on black writers. And if you look at the schedule now, that situation has entirely changed. There are even two papers on Melvin Tolson <laughs> this year, uh, which is just you know a breathtaking shift uh, in the general atmosphere. Uh, but it's always been a... a, a it's always been a precarious situation for the study of, of African-American writing. And, and um, I remember many years ago, Harvard almost lost its black studies department. And uh, a new president came along and, and, and brought Henry Louis Gates in for the express purpose of hiring a bunch of really famous people and getting it back uh, in running order. But, you know, all over the United States, universities are trying to tell black studies departments to combine with other ethnic studies departments to save money. You know, uh, the tenure situation is usually fraught in one way or another. So this has been a, a an ongoing battle. It's it's really been stepped up, as you point out, because of these political reasons. Uh, when you look at a DeSantis, it's clear he, he would prefer there not be any black studies of any kind whatsoever in the public schools. Uh, this is, you know, what lies behind uh, this Heritage Foundation-sponsored attack on critical race theory by people who clearly have no idea what it is to start with. And you see this in, in Florida's official response to the uh, the AP-proposed uh, African-American studies course. Um, one of the things they singled out was intersectionality, any talk about intersectionality, and particularly Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, what wasn't noticed much in the news media when this first came up is that Crenshaw wasn't even a major part of anything. She was listed as a secondary source. But because she was so fundamental to the establishment of intersectionality as a, if you will, a philosophical approach or a legal studies approach, you know, they, you, they don't even want to see her name anywhere near this. They don't want to see the word intersectionality. And in the official state response, they describe intersectionality as something that ranks people by their race, ethnicity, and gender. And of course, it does absolutely no such thing. If anything, it does the opposite of that. Um, but, you know, these people who are, you know, DeSantis and his administration, same thing in Texas, same thing in several other states, they know that the general population is not reading these books and doesn't know what, anything about what's going on. So when you tell the voters of a state, you know, oh, this terrible woke thing is going to tell your kid that he's a, a male chauvinist, white racist, and so forth and so on, people get very upset, and they go to school board meetings and carry guns and so forth and so on. Um, I haven't run into this quite as explicitly in Pennsylvania, um, but I did 
my freshman English course last semester was a banned books course. And I, uh, it was funny, on the very first day of classes, we were going to the syllabus, I told the students that every book on the syllabus had been banned somewhere except the introduction to critical race theory. And I said, the book hasn't been banned, just the topic. Well, sure enough, within the week, a library system in Plano, Texas, took the very book we were reading off of the shelves and moved it back into the offices so that in order to read that book, you not only have to know it exists, but you have to go up to the library's desk and ask for it as if you were asking for a book by Henry Miller or something. In fact, Henry Miller is easier to read in school libraries than Kimberly Crenshaw these days. Um, I was just interviewed uh, a week ago by a young woman who was doing uh, a series of articles on these issues for small newspapers around Pennsylvania and Indiana. And it struck me as we were talking that what this really is is an attempt, yet again, at suppression of blackness. Uh, they would never say that. They couldn't legally say that. But when you read these, these definitions of things that you cannot teach, it's very clear that that, that is what they are up to. And, um, you know, we, the old saying, two steps forward, one step back, we've really been pushed back an astonishing direction at this point. So far, most of the universities in the United States haven't been under direct attack, but we saw the journalism school in uh, UNC. I, I, I wanted to a ask another question, sort of a narrower question, that part of my uh, being able to take some satisfaction in the development of the LCLC, as you noted, is to see that uh, representation of of scholars and of the content mm -hmm. of African American literature and of ethnic literature in general has really uh, blossomed um, over the years, particularly under the tenure of my predecessor, Alan Golding. Mm -hmm. And that's great to see. And in particular, I think uh, the presence here at the Louisville Conference challenges a, a notion that that we still see that African American literature doesn't isn't intellectual in the way in which when we engage with experimental poetry uh, that the LCLC is really known for that you know we're not going to see African American. Uh, practitioners and we're not going to talk about african-american literature uh you know in in rigorous ways um do you think that this is a battle that uh you know that we still need to fight or do you think it's been won well it'll never be finally won but no this is another battle i've been fighting my whole career uh back in the 90s when i wrote the book black chant uh, what I found myself up against. And people would actually say this to me. They would say that, you know, while, while these white poets, for example, most of the language poets, you know, Erica Hunt was in there too, but it was mostly white movement. They said, while the white poets were doing all this avant-garde experimentalism, the black poets and the women were telling their stories. <laughs> and of course, everyone told their stories, you know, white, black, and, you know, whatever. But on the one hand, it was a way of not having to read the more experimental black poets and thus, you know, forwarding the pretense that somehow they didn't exist. Uh, 
these terms, experimental, innovative, avant-garde, you know, uh, always much in dispute. I can't get too excited about that discussion. Uh, you know, anytime you call someone innovative, someone will point to an earlier person that did the same thing. Um, if you talk about experimental poetry, people will compare it to science and say that's not what we're doing. Um, but if you look in your OED at the word experimental, you'll find that there's an older meaning that's never gone away having to do with things being experiential. And you find this even in the Puritan poets of the 17th century talking about having an experimental knowledge of Christ. It doesn't mean they had a scientific hypothesis. You know, it means that there was some sort of experience involved in this. So uh, that's a term for poetry that, that I feel comfortable still using because the poets we're talking about are people who uh, are not just trying to pass some message to the reader, but are trying to create art that is in and of itself uh, an experiment worth having and returning to and contemplating the way you would a good painting or a great piece of music. Uh, and Black poets have, have always done that. There's never been a time in our history when there weren't Black poets doing that. Same thing with Chicano poets, Jewish America poets, and we can go down the list. Uh, and Mellis, the multi-ethnic literature of the United States organization, has been carrying on this struggle for a very long time. You know, trying to foreground more of this work. Uh, you know, myself, people like Tyrone Williams, Laurie Shire, and others have particularly emphasized the more experimental end of these things, partly because we wanted to uh, bring it to a wider attention, especially because people had acted like it didn't even exist. So in getting into the conversation of understanding the complexity of thinking about experimental mm. and experiencing and embodied uh, aesthetic experiences. Part of what's so much fun for us about the LCLC is uh, we don't just talk about poetry. We get to perform poetry and uh, enjoy poetry. And your alter ego, uh, AL, is going to be making an appearance at the Brown Friday evening. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I'm going to be on, a, I'm not forgetting a name, too. I'm going to be on a program with uh, Mark Scroggins and Brock, I forget Brock's last Brothel. name. Thank you, because I've only, uh, I haven't actually met him yet. I've known Mark forever. I think I first met him at the uh, Louisville uh, conference. But yeah, this one's going to be sponsored by the Selva Oscura Press. Um, and we're going to we're going to have a little bit of a surprise in my segment of the program. Uh, it could turn out to be a train wreck because we have not done what we're going to do ever before. <laughs> uh, but train wrecks can be interesting to watch, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, there's also a personal note here that you would know nothing about. The only time I ever submitted to be on one of Louisville's creative panels, I got rejected. So it's it's something of a personal uh, pleasure to be coming back again in a future way. <laughs> Great. Well, that makes me very happy to know that we get to write that wrong. So even though we've gotten very good at sort of smuggling ourselves into the departments of literature and English, um, we we really need to carry, that's another struggle we need to carry on, to try to make it more possible for graduate students who are already in a precarious position anyway to, to consider uh, doing their work primarily in poetry. Mm-hmm. And do you think that uh, it, it's it's a advisable to uh, graduate students now and the younger generation coming up 
to to make an effort to involve themselves in if they're interested in this sort of thing to involve themselves in societies like the African American Literature and Culture Society. Absolutely, for the same reason I tell people to try to get to conferences. Um, I've always known colleagues, mostly older colleagues, who would say really negative things about MLA and tell students that they shouldn't waste their time writing conference papers because they have to get the dissertation on somewhere. Um, again, thinking about our field in particular, I mean, the field of poetry scholarship, <laughs> you know, unless you're at a huge place like Penn State, if you're fortunate enough to get a tenure track job, you're very likely to be the only person there who does whatever it is you do, not just poetry, but whatever. You know, unless you're like in you know mainstream canonical British authors or something, and so conferences are where you meet the other people in your field. And again, this is why Louisville has been so important. You know, once I was teaching back east again and had a little bit of travel funds, I returned to going to Louisville every single year because I could meet all these other people, including brand new people, including grad students who are doing work in poetry, and hear the work that they're doing and and make connections for the future. Um, you know, two of the books that I've published came directly out of meeting people at a conference and 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 getting finding a mutual interest. In and uh, even from last year's Louisville conference, there are um, at least three young scholars that have been in email touch with me ever since about the projects they're working on. So yeah, by all means, <laughs> uh, even at the graduate student level, get involved in these societies and these conferences because they will. Uh, form a, a real basis for the work you're going to do in the future. Not to mention all the good drinks with friends. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Alden Lynn Nielsen. If you have, please hit like, subscribe, and consider writing a review or telling a friend. And as always, please consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC. To learn more, visit us online at thelouisvilleconference.com or contact me directly, Matthew Biberman, LCLC Director. Thanks again for listening.